Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And thank you so much for joining us once again this week, guys. Please do stick around to the end of the episode so you can hear a new-ish podcast, pretty new podcast called Red Rum. We're going to play their trailer. And if you like what you hear, please do go and subscribe to her. Thank you to all of our lovely new Patreon supporters. Uh, So we have Helen, Dan Smith, Lee Thomas and Sarah Courtney. And also huge thanks to Richard Wilson, uh, who increased his pledge. That was really kind of you, Richard, and many thanks. If you're able to and you'd like to support us in this way as well, you can head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. Um, there's loads of different goodies, different tiers, depending on what you'd like to sign up with. And one of our newest features is a book club, which we really, really enjoyed. Um, we had our first one recently. We had just over 20 people, I think, in total discussing the book that we'd chosen. Well, that was chosen by a vote. And so, yeah, thank you so much to everybody who was able to join us. And a lot of people have said that they weren't able to make that one, but they're excited for the next one. So all eyes on you, Mark, to set the next one up. I'm excited for you. Yeah, we've already um, got the ball rolling on that one. So uh, we had so much fun. It was great interacting with those of you who could make it. And um, yeah, we're just in the process of choosing our new book. So uh, it's open to any any patrons of the show. It doesn't matter what level you sign up to support us at. Uh, the lowest level is £1.95 a month. So uh, if you would like to be a part of it, then just head over to Patreon to sign up. There's no minimum term, but you need to be a patron of the show uh, when we meet to discuss the book, which I think will be in... We're going to try and do it every kind of six weeks or so. I think that's... Um, the vibe I'm getting from people. So yeah, we had a fab time. Uh, we discussed I Survived by Victoria Sillias, and she is the woman whose husband attempted to murder her by sabotaging her parachute. Uh, she jumped out of a plane and miraculously survived. So uh, yeah, fascinating book, and I'm really looking forward to the next one. And lots of our listeners will be happy to have heard you just say the word husband. They love how you pronounce it. Oh, fucking hell. I've never noticed that before. I think you say it like double S, like hiss. And then most people would say it with like a Z sound, like an S that's like a... Husband. husband. I say husband. But you yeah. say husband, yeah. Husband, husband. They okay. love it. So don't change how you say it because they love it. It's like other things like Amazon. I naturally say Amazon and everyone's like, what the fuck are you saying? Argos, I say. And you You would say Argos. You used to say Argos. You used to say Argos. Oh, is it Argos then? I don't know. It is Argos. I've had to conform (laughs) to normality and I've forgotten how I even spoke now. Um, You're going to love it though because the baby calls me mommy now. I don't know where she's got this from, but she can't. She's just decided that I'm not mummy. I'm mommy. I've always said mom. M O N. Yeah, never M-U-N, that's like yeah. a Midlands one, isn't it? So it must be. Yeah, it must be. Anyway, enough of this bollocks. Let's get on with the episode. Yes. So I've done my usual. I've popped a little photo in for you. And this week we're going to be heading to Sacramento, California, and I'm going to be telling you all about Dorothea Puente, who ran a three-story, 16-bedroom care home, which provided care and comfort to the homeless and the destitute of the area. So she is in this picture about 63, 64 years old. What are your thoughts? (laughs) I feel, I I just can't believe you're asking me that question because... Obviously, we'll put the photo up on all the social media so you can see it. But 
she looks she looks actually a bit evil. Um, so I'm guessing that she is. I'm, I'm hoping she's not a victim, but uh, she looks really old for her age. If she is 63 or 64 there, she looks a hell of a lot older. Um, but that looks like a picture of her perhaps in court and she looks... She looks like a naughty little bitch. Oh, my God. So I was totally thinking that you'd be like, oh, she looks like a lovely old granny. Like, what happened to her? But yeah, no, she is a stone cold bitch. And in fact, a serial killer. Bloody and I wanted hell. to surprise you with this because no, after I, last week. <laughs> I could see it. I can see it in her eyes. I can see evil. Wow. Yeah, nothing gets past me. No, clearly not. Well, that didn't, that kind of didn't work. I was really hoping to shock you with that one. I've been in this game too long. You have. Dorothea Puente was convicted of three murders and was sentenced to life in prison without parole on December 11th, 1993. But nine murders have been attributed to her and there are 25 suspected deaths that were at her hand, although they haven't been proven. So what brought her to that point, the woman in her mid-60s being tried not just for murder, but for multiple killings? That's what I'm going to be telling you about today. Born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in California, she had a really traumatic and troubled upbringing. She lived with her parents and her siblings, but it was not a happy home. The parents were both alcoholics. Dorothea's father repeatedly threatened to take his own life, and often he'd make these threats in front of his children. Both parents abused Dorothea, and she often had to scavenge for food. Her dad died of tuberculosis in 1937 and then Dorothea's mum lost custody of the children in 1938 and she died in a motorcycle accident by the end of that same year. Dorothea and her siblings, not only had they lost both their parents, but they were subsequently sent to an orphanage and it was here that Dorothea was sexually abused. Finally, relatives from Fresno, California took her in, but in later life she'd lie about her childhood saying that she was one of 18 children born and raised in Mexico And you can totally understand why she might have felt the need to make up a story about her upbringing. God, I mean, that is like, you couldn't really make her real upbringing up. It's so horrible. Her dad died, her mom lost custody and then subsequently died. And um, then she's sexually abused. That's just... It is one of these things, isn't it, where you do think, is this um, nurture versus nature more sort of thing, isn't it? Because who's going to come out of that? a nice rounded well well adjusted human but it doesn't excuse anything but it, it does kind of give you a bit of an indication as to potentially why she's quite cold yeah but then you've got to look at it i know she didn't necessarily have 17 other siblings she made that up but she had siblings and i'm guessing they didn't turn out the same way as her um not that i'm aware of and not that's yeah. ever been mentioned so yeah exactly So before we're going to look at the life and crimes of Dorothea, let's hear from this week's first show sponsor. Dorothea was married four times. The first was at the age of 16 to a soldier named Fred McFall, who had just returned from the Pacific Theatre of World War II. The pair had a daughter who she sent to live with relatives in Sacramento. Oh, it's hard to know what's happened kind of for sure with this marriage. So some sources state that he left her after she suffered a miscarriage and then other sources say that he actually died of a heart attack within a couple of years she was caught forging checks and was sentenced to a year in jail but was paroled after six months and soon after release she fell pregnant and gave birth to another baby girl which she gave up for adoption and again the stories around this child vary so either it was another child of her husband's or she apparently barely knew the father um so it's really difficult to know for definite my kind of gut feeling with this is that 
her husband had passed away and then that's why she gave up the child. That sounds the most plausible, doesn't it? Particularly back then. Yeah, and there's no divorce recorded for this pair. So him dying kind of makes more sense. And why would one of, if they were sisters, why would one go to relatives and the other for adoption? It's it's kind of unimportant, but it's another sad fact. You know, she didn't have either of her daughters with her um, from when they were really young. Yeah. In 1952, Dorothea married a merchant seaman called Axel Bren Johansson, which I thought was a really cool name, in San Francisco. And as a part of this marriage, she created herself a fake persona. So she called herself Taya Singoala Nayada, and she claimed Egyptian and Israeli descent. And she also said that she belonged to the Muslim religion. This was a marriage described as turbulent, and Dorothea would apparently take advantage of Johansson's frequent trips to sea by inviting men to their home. And not only would she cheat on him, she'd also gamble away his money. Oh my God. I mean, like in some respects, she sounds like a bit of a legend. She's just reinvented herself. She's come up with this fake persona, this crazy name. Her husband's working away. So she's like fucking all these men and gambling away all of his money. It's normally, particularly back then in the 50s and 60s, you would maybe have expected that behavior from a man, not a woman. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And then in 1961, he actually had her committed um, to the DeWitt State Hospital because she'd gone on a binge of drinking. She'd also been lying, having criminal behaviours and suicide attempts. And it was while she was there that doctors diagnosed her as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. So he was not happy with this. But also, like he said, in this kind of time, that was not normal for a woman to behave no. like that whatsoever. And I kind of, I mean, I'm not saying it was right that he had her committed to a psychiatric hospital, but um, I mean, it does sound like there are some deep-rooted psychiatric issues. Um, but I can kind of understand. He must have just thought, I don't know where to go with this. She's lying, she's drinking. And he did seem to want to help. Yeah, and if she was um, having sort of suicide attempts, then it probably was the safest place for her. Yeah, probably unsurprisingly, that pair divorced in 1966. And her third marriage was to Roberto Jose Fuente in 1968, but they separated after just 16 months. And whilst Dorothea did serve him with a divorce petition, he fled to Mexico. So the divorce wasn't finalised until 1973. The reason that Dorothea gave for wanting out of this relationship was that she was a victim of domestic abuse and she also filed a restraining order against him. But she did choose to keep his name. So she went as Dorothea Puente then for more than 20 years. She eventually met and married her fourth husband, Pedro Angel Montalvo, although he abruptly left the relationship only a week after their marriage. Wow. God, I mean, yeah. I, I wonder if he was just kind of like, so, I mean, that could have been like a really um, brief courtship and then they married and then he was like, oh my God, what have I got myself into with her? Yeah. That kind of sounds like it. Yeah. A week of marriage and it's come to an end. Yeah. So Dorothea, as well as inviting men to her home to gamble whilst her husband was away, being committed to hospital for outrageous behaviour, and don't forget this was the 60s, Dorothea was also a criminal. 
1948, that original time that I'd said about, she was charged and pled guilty to two counts of forgery after she was caught purchasing accessories using forged checks. She served four months in jail and three years probation. She was then also arrested in 1960 for owning and operating a brothel under the guise of a bookkeeping firm in Sacramento. And when she was found guilty, she was sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail. For some time following her separation from husband number two, she did use his name to go by the identity of Sharon Johansson. And she kind of had this identity as a kind Christian woman, a caregiver, and she provided young women with sanctuary from poverty and abuse for free. So some of the things she did was quite nice. Uh, Yeah. And even um, running a brothel, I wonder if that was her way of protecting those women that were selling sex. So she was running the brothel and that meant they didn't have to have a pimp or at least they had some kind of protection. I mean, that might absolutely not be the case and she was exploiting them. Um, But it could be that there were more altruistic motives behind that. Yeah, some. I mean, she did go into nursing at one point as well. So she must have had something in her that wanted to care for people. However, it was just overridden with a, a need for something else. And following her divorce from husband number three, but keeping his surname, Dorothea Puente decided to focus her attentions on running a boarding house in Sacramento. And actually, she did establish herself as a genuine resource to the community. So she provided aid and shelter to alcoholics, the homeless and the mentally ill. She held AA meetings. She assisted individuals to sign up to receive their social security benefits. She became a respected member in Sacramento's Hispanic community. She funded charities, scholarships and radio programs. However, she just couldn't be an upstanding citizen forever. And it didn't really take much to reveal her criminal behaviour had continued. In 1978, she was charged and convicted of illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants. And she was given five years probation and was ordered to pay $4,000 in compensation. Yeah, it does sound like she just can't can't help herself from um, from being a criminal, essentially. So all of that good stuff she'd done, maybe that was a, a cover for her real behaviour, or maybe that was a way of making up for past misdemeanours, but it was always bubbling there on the surface. She just couldn't keep a lid on it, could she? No, and it's it's greed, isn't it? It's just, I want money. So the first of Dorothea's murder victims was her friend and her partner in a rental business called Ruth Monroe. In the early 80s, Ruth moved to an apartment that Dorothea was renting out, and in April 1982, Ruth was found dead in her bed. Her cause of death was a lethal overdose of codeine and Tylenol, Dorothea told the police that her friend had been depressed because her husband was terminally ill. They just ruled her death as suicide. Dorothea inherited $6,000 from her estate. And this idea of killing someone to inherit their money or to ensure that she could keep an income was kind of what she then developed into her standard routine and her modus operandi with these murders that she went on to do. God, it's, um, it's kind of like a Harold Shipman sort of vibe, isn't it? Yeah, no, completely agree. So obviously she's not a doctor, but she's she's literally going around or going to be going around killing people for uh, financial gain. And she's not a doctor, but she is in a position of of someone with responsibility and trust for these people who are vulnerable. Like yeah, a absolutely. Is. Yeah. 
Dorothea was accused of drugging and stealing from a 74-year-old pensioner named Malcolm McKenzie, and she was convicted of three charges of theft on August the 18th, 1982, and was sentenced to five years in jail. So he had reported to police that he'd met Dorothea at a bar, they had several drinks together, and then he invited her back to his apartment, but soon after they arrived, he became dizzy, and although he was conscious, he was unable to move. He could only sit and watch as Puente searched the house for valuables. She took his rare penny collection. She even took a diamond ring that she forcefully removed from his finger. And whilst incarcerated, Dorothea struck up a pen pal friendship with Everson Gilmouth. And when she was released in 1985, after serving three years of her five-year sentence, he actually met her outside the jail in his red Ford pickup. The pair talked of marriage And in a similar way to kind of what you said about husband number four, it was quite a whirlwind. People who knew the pair said it was very, very sudden. She got out of prison and then it was, right, when are we moving in together? When are we getting married? I suppose there was there was probably an element of her that wanted some security. So she in in sort of constantly finding men and marrying them, she was maybe just always after the happy ending. Uh, no pun intended, uh, but maybe she was just trying to put right all of the crap she'd endured in childhood by making sure her adulthood was a lot better and that she had the security. Yeah, I think so. I think so, definitely. And they seemed to be reasonably happy. They were talking about marriage, but then he vanished. And Dorothea asked a local handyman to make her a specialist wooden box in 1985 and later asked him to help her move it. So she paid him in cash and with a red Ford pickup that her apparently boyfriend no longer needed and asked him to help her transport the nailed shut box to a storage facility. Whilst on the way, she changed her mind and said to the handyman, just stop the car, take the box out and dump it on a riverbank. But what that handyman didn't know was that inside the box, rather than books and junk, was Everson Gilmouth. And on January the 1st, 1986, a fisherman spotted this kind of coffin-looking box near the river and informed police. Investigators found a badly decomposed and unidentifiable body of an elderly man inside, and his cause of death is, is still unknown. His body lay unidentified for three years, and Puente continued to cash his pension checks and send his family members letters that were supposedly written from him. Oh my God, how did she get away with that? It's like she's asked a handyman to basically build a coffin and then to help him tra- help her transport it and then dump it. It's like, I mean, did that guy not twig what this might have been for? Well, no, because she's just a respectable little old lady who wants to get rid of some books and junk. Yeah, I suppose. Like, yeah. he really trusted her. And that's that's what's so mad with this woman. She really... I mean, not that everybody trusts her. Some people did still have their doubts and suspicions. But yeah, people just, they saw what they saw on the surface of this little old lady, which you did not fall for. No, but like I say, I'm, I've been in this game too long. I know, I know when a, you know, 62, 63 year old woman uh, is a baddie and I could see it. I could see it in her eyes. So Dorothea continued to accept elderly boarders. And she was popular with local social workers as well because she accepted the tough cases, including drug addicts and people who would be abusive and therefore not attractive tenants to anybody else. But she ruled with an iron fist. So she collected the tenants monthly mail before they saw it and she'd pay them a small amount after pocketing the rest for her so-called expenses. 
Her parole office did have her on their radar and they visited her at least 15 times. They even warned her to keep away from the elderly and refrain from handling government checks, but officially no violations were ever noted and they didn't stop her from doing anything, they just warned her. She was a well-known face in the community and generally she had the reputation for being caring and just wanting to do good for people, although not always because some tenants did resent her stinginess, some complained that she refused to give them their mail or money, but plenty of others praised her for her small acts of kindness or her generous homemade meals. Dorothea was clever, although also greedy, so she squandered most of the money that she stole on her lavish lifestyle. But the one way that she ensured a steady income was she would cruise bars looking for new customers and then get them to come and live with her because they needed help. And then when she collected all the mail and opened it before the tenants got to it, she would give them each enough to get drunk at the nearest bar. And then she'd ring the police with an anonymous tip about someone being drunk and disorderly. So then that person would get locked up for 30 days, during which time Dorothea was pocketing their benefit money. Oh my God, she's like, I don't know if she's really clever or just a vile, horrible woman, but... I think it's both. I think she's really clever, but what a bitch. (laughs) She is, honestly, she is an absolute bitch. I kind of love that at least she's funding a lavish lifestyle because she's getting all of this money in. And I was like, yeah, what's she doing with it? But... I kind of like the fact that at least she's kind of enjoying it, but obviously it's awful what she's doing. And ultimately, the police believed at the time Dorothea was making more than $5,000 a month in this way. So the first suspicions were roused when Dorothea took in a homeless alcoholic man named Chief and set him to work as a handyman digging the basement. At the time, the basement floor was covered with a concrete slab, but Chief would be carting soil and rubbish away in a wheelbarrow, so people kind of thought that was a bit weird. And then he later dismantled a garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab on the floor there, as well as in the the basement. And then soon afterwards, he disappeared. Betty Palmer, a resident in her 70s, never returned from a doctor's appointment. And several weeks later, Dorothea was in possession of an ID in Betty's name with her own picture that she was using to collect Betty's benefits. Leona Carpenter was discharged from hospital and placed into Puente's care, aged 78, and two weeks later she went missing and was never heard from again. James Gallup was 62 and was last seen in July 1987 when he was treated by his doctor after months in hospital following an operation to remove a brain tumour. So he told the doctor that he was moving into a boarding house. In the following October, um, 62-year-old Vera Martin also moved into the boarding house, but she was also never seen again. So people started to wonder, where had people gone? However, these are all kind of transient people anyway, so it wasn't the weirdest situation for people to move on. It kind of, um, it also reminds me of Fred and Rose West and what they did. So they almost... definitely. At times they almost had like what was essentially a boarding house and they would take these young, vulnerable women into the home. Sometimes they would act as nannies, um, but they were quite often transient. They'd maybe run away from home or they were travelling um, in the UK from a different country. And I think that's how they got away with it for so long. These women would uh, appear on the scene and then disappear, but it could be easily explained away. And I think this is really similar, isn't it? Like you say, these are transient people with chaotic lifestyles, so it can be easily explained away. 
And I think nowadays we have mobiles, we have social media, um, you are more in contact with people. When you think about Elisa Lam, when she went missing, her parents raised the alarm so quickly because they were so used to hearing from her on a daily basis. Same with Rebecca Coriam, who we covered. It was the fact that she hadn't got in touch with them the next day. Back in the 80s, you wouldn't hear from people unless you you did like do you know what i mean it, well, just it was wasn't, like it wasn't yeah, such a problem you wouldn't hear from people unless you saw them or you might get letters which would take ages to arrive and then people would write back and yeah it was all a much slower pace of communication which definitely would have um helped dorothea yeah but it was the disappearance of tenant Alberto Montoya, sometimes known as Bert, whose social worker had reported him missing, that finally uncovered Dorothea's secrets. So Alberto was a disabled man with schizophrenia who had failed to show up to meetings after moving into the boarding house. So Dorothea had been managing his finances too. And when other tenants asked about him, they were told that he'd gone back to Mexico to visit his family. Alberto was known as a quiet man who would rather speak to trees instead of people and whilst he was labelled a drunken bum, he didn't drink alcohol at all. A volunteer aid worker named Judy Moyes was really taken by this gentleman and she spent a long time tracking down his official identification, his social security information and setting him up so he could claim his benefits. She found him a boarding house and was greeted at the door by a white-haired old lady who to Judy seemed pleasant enough. She appeared to run a clean and orderly house and within weeks of living there, Bert's general condition and demeanour had improved. He was having his hair washed and combed, his nails were clean, his clothes were spotless, he began to take better care of himself. He even resumed taking his antipsychotic medication and soon he was talking in full sentences again. And Peggy Nickerson, a social worker who had sent many clients to the boarding house, became quite suspicious when she tried to visit some of the people she'd sent there, but she was told by Dorothea that they'd just moved away. Initially, she believed those stories because most of the people in question were, like we were saying, they were transients, they had a history of wandering off, returning to old ways, going out drinking, and in the absence of any evidence to support her suspicions, she just kind of stopped sending people to the house just in case... She didn't really have anything to prove, but... But what annoys me there is she was obviously suspicious enough to kind of think, I'm not going to send anyone there again, just in case. But then I suppose if she had no evidence, that's kind of different, isn't it? Yeah, she couldn't really go to the police, but it was Judy Moyes who actually did file a missing persons report with the police about Bert. She said she just didn't accept his the story from Dorothea about him having gone to Mexico. She said he's not the type to run away. And so finally, somebody kind of had enough suspicions that they could bring it to the police. The police headed to the house to have a look around. And when they were there, a resident passed a secret note which stated he'd been told to lie by Dorothea. And so on November the 11th, 1988, the police arrived with a warrant to search the property and to dig the gardens and they began to investigate. Dorothea, however, was not initially a suspect, so she was actually allowed to leave the property to buy a cup of coffee at the nearby hotel and immediately fled to Los Angeles. (laughs) And it was apparently really quite embarrassing for the police because then when they realised it was her, they went to go talk to her and they were like, hang on, where is she? And someone said, well, yesterday she left for a cup of coffee. And it was just really, really embarrassing in the media for them as well. 
But I do kind of understand where they're coming from because they're greeted by this old lady. She looks a lot older than she was or is and um, she had white hair. You would never suspect her of anything untoward. So, And also, we're kind of taught, aren't we, to respect older people. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So what, are they really going to stop her popping out to get a coffee um, if, they, if they're not suspicious? No. And it was just in time for her, really, that she'd escaped because they'd soon found the body of 78-year-old Leona Carpenter on the property and seven bodies were eventually found buried around the grounds. So before we move on to how the fleeing Dorothea was captured, let's hear from our second show sponsor this week. During the second day of the law enforcement search of her grounds, Dorothea Puente had seemingly vanished. She had packed a bag and asked if she could just pop off and buy a cup of coffee at a nearby hotel, which was allowed. But soon the police were finding bodies and it was apparently a matter of huge embarrassment that they'd let her get away. But like we said, I can totally understand She's only asked to go to the hotel to get a cup of coffee. They don't know that she's running away. And over the following days, seven bodies, including Bert Montoya's, were unearthed. And one body, that of Betty Palmer, was missing the head, hands and lower legs. Her missing parts were never found, despite all the searches of the house and the yard, which I thought was really, really sad. And also, like, where where were they? What had Dorothea yeah. done with that with that poor woman's head? I mean, that is no mean feat to sever someone's head and then, I don't know, just dispose of it somehow. And at the same time, the police began an investigation into the disappearances of Everson Gilmuth and the death of Ruth Monroe. So Gilmuth was then later identified from his hospital x-rays, but they still couldn't ever determine his actual cause of death. For many years, her neighbours had complained about the odd smell coming from Dorothea Puente's yard, saying it was a mix of sweetness and rot, but they'd kind of keep their windows closed instead of doing anything or reporting it. And they didn't actually notice that she was spreading quicklime around the yard. Why would you even imagine that that sweet old lady down the road was burying bodies? I, th- I think that the most disturbing element of their description isn't the rot, because you would kind of expect to smell like that. But they said it's like a, a, a mix between sweetness and rot. And I, I'm fortunate enough to have never had to smell a rotten dead body. But I can actually imagine that there is probably almost this weird sweet smell mixed with, with rotting flesh which makes me feel physically sick now. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. A nationwide manhunt was begun and the FBI were called in. Airports, bus depots and railway stations were checked and she was later found to have laid a false trail because she booked a flight to LA in her own name but didn't take the flight. So as a result, the police kind of discounted LA as a possible destination. This was another decision that caused them embarrassment because she actually was in LA. She'd hidden out under the name Dorothea Johnson at a hotel in Los Angeles. Now, this is where she, you know, she was clever to do that, but she's still just obviously greedy or, or needs attention because she'd only lasted a few days without leaving her room, but soon got bored and headed to a local bar, introduced herself to an older man as Donna, and she was just up to her old tricks really quickly. She'd picked her mark really well, and Charles was a lonely man who even took her shoes to go and get them repaired for her. At the time, she'd only just met this guy and he's off getting her shoes fixed. But I, I suppose that's how manipulative she is. Exactly. She she knew exactly who to pick up 
and how to get what she wanted out of them. Yeah, she's she's like she can just read people so well. She's targeting deliberately targeting vulnerable people, people that can be manipulated and um and then is getting whatever she wants from them. And she began to turn the conversation around to his financial position. And on learning that he was receiving sickness benefits, she offered to show him how to increase the amount he received each month by filling out additional forms that could capitalise on his condition. So while Charles was impressed by her knowledge of such things, he began to wonder how could she know so much about it? And the pair talked for hours, but he began to feel really unsure when Donna started to discuss celebrating Thanksgiving together and even moving in with one another. He couldn't put his finger on it, but he felt unsettled. And it was only when he'd left and he'd switched on the television that night that he realised where his bad feeling had originated. So Donna was the woman that he'd seen on telly that morning, wanted in Sacramento, on suspicion of multiple murder. (laughs) Can you imagine that feeling of... I know. What a lucky escape. I know. And I feel really sorry for him because he still didn't quite want to... He didn't want to just accuse somebody of something that if he didn't know for definite. So he'd called a local news reporter and was kind of like, I think I've got suspicions, I'm not sure. And they talked him through it all. And it was really, really quite sweet, to be honest. But eventually he did go to the police and they turned up at the hotel. Dorothea was finally caught and sent back to Sacramento to await trial. And when she was on her way back, she apparently said to the reporter, I cashed checks, yes, but I never killed anyone. I used to be a good person once. But we all know she did, so. Yeah, and I kind of get that, She, yeah, she did used to be a good person before all that shit happened to her in childhood. And then also later on in adulthood, she tried to perhaps make up for some of those past crimes by becoming that good person. But it just couldn't, it was just never in her to, to truly change. I completely agree, definitely. So there were officially nine deaths attributed to Dorothea Puente. So they are Ruth Monroe and Everson Gilmuth, and then the further seven who were buried in either Dorothea's house or under the concrete slab in her backyard. So their deaths were caused by medication overdoses or suffocation, and they are Betty Palmer, Leona Carpenter, James Gallup, Alberto Montoya, Benjamin Fink, Vera Ray Martin, and Dorothy Miller. But numerous other people came forward to claim that their loved ones went missing whilst in Puente's care. The real number of people killed by her may well be as high as 25 people. Yeah, it's de- it's definitely going to be more than the nine people that they've attributed to her because she couldn't help herself. It was so easy and there would have been real transient people that were never reported as missing, whose bodies that she would have disposed of in weird and wonderful ways and they've never been found or identified. So yeah, I bet like Shipman, uh, I bet she's responsible for many more than than she was accused or or charged with. And the postmortems showed large concentrations of the drug flurazepam. And the police did find dozens of prescriptions for that drug among Dorothea's belongings. As the investigations progressed, detectives discovered that Dorothea had cashed over 60 benefit checks belonging to the deceased people after their deaths. So she was booked into Sacramento County Jail and later that day she was led into court where she met with her two court-appointed attorneys. Just seven minutes later she was arraigned without bail on one count of murder, so Bert Montoya's. And while she was in jail, the police were then able to work on processing all of their evidence and identifying the remains. 
Eventually, after months, the pre-trial hearings began on April 25th, 1990. And then the trial began in October 1992. And it ended a year later. A year so, later. Yeah. It, it was hell. a long trial. The prosecution had 130 <laughs> witnesses to testify against Dorothea. That is mad. Yeah. So... In their their sort of case, the prosecution's case was that Dorothea Puente had used sleeping pills to put her tenants to sleep and then suffocated them. And they basically worked really hard to portray her as a greedy, manipulating, cold-blooded killer whose sole reason for opening her boarding house was to do away with her clients as a means of claiming their benefits for herself. Which I totally agree with. I don't... I don't think I... I don't think I could believe her if she tried to say that she started the boarding house with good intentions. I genuinely think that she did it for greed. I I agree. I think you're right. The defence did call several witnesses that showed Puente had a generous and caring side to her and the witnesses, including her long-lost daughter, testified how Puente had helped them in their youth, guided them to successful careers. They had mental health experts testifying of Puente's abusive upbringing and how that had motivated her to help the less fortunate. The defence described Puente's sad upbringing and pointed out that she took on borders that no one else wanted. So they kind of wanted to dredge up sympathy for Dorothea in this way. But I just don't buy it. I just think she took those people because nobody else wanted them. She knew she could get away with it easier. I agree, but I also think you can have people that do good things that are bad people. Look at Jimmy Savile. He masqueraded as this charitable, caring, giving person. And the whole time it was a a way of distracting from his real behaviour, which was abusing and probably killing innocent people. So I think just because she did all that good stuff, if I was on that jury, I'd be like, well, whatever. Like, you know, yeah, I'm sure, you know, maybe there were even good motives behind it, but she is still a bad person. She's done bad things and that's pretty damn obvious. And... The jury did really struggle, so they deliberated for over a month, and I'm going to try and simplify it because there's quite a lot of back and forth with this case, so um, you can kind of find out more online, but eventually they found Dorothea Puente guilty of three murders. I don't know which three people got full justice and which of the others didn't. I guess it almost doesn't matter at this point to, to the courts. The jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 for conviction on all counts and the lone holdout kind of finally agreed to a conviction of two first-degree murder counts, including special circumstances and one second-degree murder count and that's why they then came to the position of three. So in the end, she was found guilty of three murders and she received two life sentences without parole and for the rest of her life she maintained her innocence, insisting that all of her boarders had died of natural causes but then she just buried them in the garden and carried on cashing their cheques. And also, what a coincidence, they've all died. You know, anyone that just happens to move in there dies quite quickly and just naturally, yeah. Yeah, and I think if they're older, potentially it would make more sense if they'd had heart attacks and stuff, but not if you're finding drug overdoses in their system or the evidence of suffocation. She clearly did it. And it's like you say, like... Even if they did die of natural causes, you don't then just bury someone in your garden, do you? You phone the authorities and say, oh my God, yeah, you say someone's just died and it's all dealt with properly. You don't fucking bury them under a slab of concrete. Yeah, she's weird. 
So there you go, Mark. I thought I'd go for a little bit of a different one. I thought I'd head to somewhere new for the podcast and talk about a serial killer. I know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you've gone to America. I don't think we've been there for quite a while. So um, yeah, I'm loving that we've we've taken a little trip abroad and a really interesting case because like you say, although I can see it in the photo of her, I think for anybody else that came into contact with her in normal life, they, they would never have suspected her. She kind of reminds me a bit of um, Sophia out of the Golden Girls. If, if you're kind of trying to imagine what she looks like, she definitely has a Sophia vibe going on. Um, but yeah, very, um, very interested, very unexpected. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Come and chat to us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are on the case. Have you heard about Dorothea Puente before? Is this someone new to you? Come and chat with us. Don't forget to check out our show sponsors. So we have betterhelp.com slash red and we also have curve.com slash red. So do check both of those out. And if you would like to sign up to support us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. And your support for us and the show through Patreon means so much and it means that we're still here. So uh, we, we're most grateful, but we know that not everybody is in a position to support us in that way at the moment. So thank you for all of your support in all of your other wonderful ways. Yes, we've had a few more people buy some merchandise recently. So if you've had merchandise from us, please get some selfies sent in to us. We want to see you in your in your merch. Um, and... Keep an ear out for Red Rum's trailer. And until next time, we will see you then. Bye. Bye. Clarissa frantically called 911 and told the operator that she was 36 weeks pregnant and had just given birth at home, but the baby wasn't breathing and had turned blue. Paramedics quickly arrived and took Clarissa and baby Zander to the hospital where he was rushed to intensive care. Hospital staff noticed that Clarissa's arms, hands and face were covered in blood, assumedly from the home delivery. But when they managed to check Clarissa over, they made the chilling discovery that she showed no signs at all of having given birth. Red Rum is a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Search Red Rum True Crime wherever you get your podcasts.